being your authentic self, for one. And so what does that look like? How do you show up? Who are you at your best? And show up that way. Two, while we can borrow things we learn from other leaders, I would just encourage you to find out who you are. And if you're rah-rah, be rah-rah. If you're analytical, be analytical. If you're strategic, be strategic. And then surround yourself with people to fill your gaps. Thirdly, I would say, if you're doing great, someone asked me the other day, your glass always seems half full. I said, hey, my man, I'm grateful just to have a glass. <laughs> I said, but if your glass is full and you're feeling good and you're healthy and you're doing wonderful and the wind is at your back, I just would strongly encourage you or advise you to reach out and help others. Like, look, who doesn't have their video on in the next Zoom? Whose voicemail box is full? Who's not responding to text? Who missed the deadline that never missed the deadline? Who's late for calls that never is late for calls? Like, just be aware and just reach out and just check in. And the world is better when love is in action, for sure. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love, love that will help your employees to flourish and businesses to thrive and outperform the competition. Please share this episode with a friend and help us to spread the Love in Action movement globally. So we've all just emerged from a year of life-altering challenges. I'm certainly no exception. I mean, I got hit with COVID not too long ago. It was brutal. I was on my back for two weeks, but I have recovered since. And I know countless people listening right now have struggled as well. So before we simply focus on, on moving forward from this pandemic and all the effects of the pandemic, how can we learn and grow from these experiences? Some of which we've never dealt with before. So we don't even have a a frame of reference before this pandemic hit us to kind of know, okay, well, hey, I've been here before. So here's how I'm going to do this, right? So according to Scott O'Neill, who is the former CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers NBA team, as well as the New Jersey Devils NHL team, the solution is mastering how to stay present, or as he likes to put it, how to be where your feet are Coincidentally, that is also the title of his latest book, Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. And in the book, Scott candidly shares his own struggles, successes, and actionable lessons. Hey, Scott O'Neill does not hold back. He is real, 100% authentic, and incredibly humble in sharing his stories. And for me, that's very rare for somebody that has been in in the public eye in the sports world. And Scott joins us now. Honor to sit with you. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Humbled and honored to be part. I love the movement. I love the language of love. I'm, I'm one of, I, I honestly, I always say, hey, I know nobody uses this in business, but it's the critical, the critical piece in business. So I, I use the term quite a bit. Well, I appreciate that. We we try to use it all the time, and. And sometimes, you know, there's pushback, Scott, because the word love is just off-putting in the business world for a lot of people. Well, I would uh, say you have to you have to love each other, but you don't have to like each other. That's how I use it. Because you do. It's like your family. It's like your sister or your brother. You didn't always like them, but you always love. 
Right. And if you can get that type of connection and teamwork at work and create that sort of family, life gets pretty good pretty quickly. It does. And we've also learned that it's, it's a mindset that not everyone has. I think everyone is inherently able to love, but not everyone has the capacity to do it. Perhaps they came from environments or backgrounds growing up or just they've seen bad examples of how to lead people in previous organizations. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but maybe somebody that is coming from a very autocratic, top-down, you know, it's my way or the highway type of environment. Maybe we can flip a switch on them. It might take a few seasons, but maybe they are able to love as well. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think we should confuse style with love because they're all different types of styles and leaders all over the world have different styles. And, and what I always advise is just be your authentic self. And and your authentic self can be authoritative mm. because I always define culture as what you celebrate and what you tolerate. Okay. So mm. it's what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And so I'm much more interested in that than I am if, if someone's rah-rah or someone's kumbaya or someone's uses flowery language. I want to see love in the heart. I want to see it yeah. demonstrated. How do I care about people? Yeah. How do I, I live as if I love you? You know, I, you don't have to tell me you love me. You have to show me you love me. You know, I, I, do, I don't want people to get confused with, with style over the actual essence and execution. Interesting. Uh, you said it's through actionable. It's through action, basically. That's why we call it love and action, because you have to be able to demonstrate love and care. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be soft. I mean, it could be love and care by holding somebody accountable, right? I think it could. I'll give you a, you know, I worked for David Stern, the, the God rest his soul, he's passed away recently, but the commissioner of the NBA. There was no doubt he was in charge. I mean, he was old school, tough you know, scream, yell, threaten. He believed in management by fear and intimidation. But that guy loved me, mm. you know, from the day I worked for him until the day he passed away. And I knew it. When I had to pick up the extension 8300 and he'd be screaming bloody murder at me, it didn't feel good, okay? When we were at an event and something went wrong and he went nuts on me, didn't feel great. But in the moments when I needed him most, he showed up. When I had an issue at home, he showed up. When I had an issue with my dad, he showed up. When I had a problem, a challenge, I was struggling, he loved me. And I was, that's, that's why I just want to make, draw that distinction because it, it doesn't have to be, oh, how are you doing? It's okay. Because, because we don't, we're not all cut from that same cloth. But when, I, when someone truly shows me that they love me, you know, they got me forever. Wow. We, I mean, we hit the ground running, running here pretty quickly with that story. Now, speaking of story, Scott, we start the episode with... Maybe a personal story, a life-changing moment, or, or something a pivotal in your life that happened. So what would you say? What is your story? You know, it, it's such a wonderful question, and it's one that I start every interview with. I'm interviewing prospective colleagues to work with, because it, it gives you a really good insight into where their heads are. So I oftentimes start at the present and then roll backwards. And so my present is amazing. I stepped down from Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment company I've worked and led for eight years. I worked for these incredible guys, Josh Harrison, David Glitzer, and Michael Rubin, all very successful in their own right, two private equity and one entrepreneur. And we grew two and a half billion dollars of value in eight years. Can you imagine? Incredible business. And we started with a, a sports team that was a tenant in a building that practiced in a, in a gym shared with college students to a global sports and entertainment juggernaut. Yeah. And I walked away. So right now I am having fun. I'm in, I'm in the most Zen state I've been in, in maybe in my entire life. I just came back from an incredible trip to Mozambique with one of my daughters helping to build a school. I've been traveling around and speaking to companies from Google to sports and entertainment companies to high tech to 
everything in pharma to everything in between, which has been really interesting and engaging. I have been married for 25 years to the most amazing woman in the world, Lisa. And I've got three incredible daughters, Alexa, Kira, and Eliza, 21, 18, and 14. And they are all a handful in their own way. And I grew up in a really loving family. You know, we couldn't rub two nickels together when I was young. And my folks <laughs> went from nothing to country club to lost their money, lost everything again. So really interesting way to grow up with nothing to having means to not having any again. So wonderful experience to have range, as I like to call it. So I can, I'm comfortable with an electrician as I am a, in the boardroom, which is kind mm-hmm. of a fun way to communicate. Like I have been given every advantage in the world. My folks could believe in education. They are both PhDs. They're both entrepreneurs, built several companies together. You know, I have four siblings who are my best of friends, which is wonderful. So I've had it, had it pretty good. I went to Villanova undergrad. I've worked in sports business for 25 years for the Nets, the Philadelphia Eagles, ran a company into the ground called Hoops TV, worked at the NBA, president of Madison Square Garden, most recently, CEO of HBSC. I went to Harvard Business School, which is kind of like a, are you kidding me moment for me? And life's good. I, I can tell you, I've, I've learned so many things along the way. In this book, this is not a pat yourself on the back, you know, like, like that Lego guy. Everything is awesome. It's not that book. So if you're looking for that, you got to find something else. I wrote this book after my best friend, unfortunately, took his own life. And he was suffering from depression and all kinds of, you know, imbalances. And he, he went up to his room and shot himself in the head. And I spiraled into a really bad place. And I had never experienced grief. My dad had just died eight months earlier. And, and I was praying for my dad to pass away. He's suffering mightily at the end. And then my best friend takes his own life. And I couldn't get it. I don't know what it is. And I can't articulate it. But all I, all I can tell you is I, I understand depression. I understand grief now. And I never did. I understand when you can't sleep and you can't get out of bed in the morning. I understand when you're talking to somebody at work and they say something that's completely unrelated and you burst into tears and walk into your office. That's where I was for months. Wow. And sadly, I never raised my hand. Never. I never said, hey, I need to see somebody. Hey, I need to get help. Like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump. You know, Forrest runs and runs and runs. I was writing like Forrest was running. Like, Mm -hmm. I I kind of understood why he was running at that point. It's the first time I never thought about it. But he was running away. And I was writing away. And so I would just tuck myself in my little office here and just write on my iPad. Little keyboard. And a lot of it was nonsense, but the stuff that did make some sense was about lessons I learned from when I, when I stumbled and fell down. I got myself into a place where I was talking to friends of mine. I said, well, have you ever had that experience? So they would tell me experiences. I would write them down. And uh, it just became a kind of a journey or my own personal escape. And, and my wife, God bless her, uh, brought her friend up here, Randall Wright, who I ended up writing a book with. And he's written a dozen books or so successfully. He's like, so I understand you're writing. <laughs> it was one of those things where you know my wife organ- or, like orchestrated this whole thing, but I didn't know. And she, he's really good friends with her and, and me too, but, but much better friends with her. And he came up and he said, hey, what are you up to? And I said, oh, nothing really. He said, how's work on? I was like, it's okay. He's like, you know, I've never seen you like this. You hanging in there? He gave me some wonderful counsel and advice. And then he asked me to read some of my stuff, which I was like at first year. I was like, no, nah, it's kind of like my own thing, you know? And I handed over a couple pieces to him. And he's like, Scott, can you imagine if you publish this and you can influence one person, can you imagine? I'm sure he had, yeah, like I, I, he knows me well enough to know like that is, you know, everybody looks, searches for their why in life, right? And I know mine is. I'm, I want to help, help develop the next great generation of leaders and I want to leave the world better than I found it. That's it. That's why I get up in the morning. And that kind of tugged at me a bit. And then I said, okay, let's do it. And so we, it's a process to write a book. I mean, you know, you, yeah, for me, yeah. I, I need to get a writer to clean it up. 
Michelle Bender, who's a world-beating, incredible woman. Like Jan Miller's incredible agent, and then St. Martin's and Tim Bar Bottom, which was awesome. And then you're in the mix. I mean, it's different. It's like it's not what I. I don't know. I've gotten notes on LinkedIn that are they're humbling. It's just humbling. Like it's it's like, hey, I listened to your book start to finish on a trip to Montana. I want to be a better father. I'm going to be a better husband. You know, can I connect with you? Like that kind of stuff. And you're like, whoa. Or people are saying to me, hey, your concept of API, some positive intent, which I hope we get to, I use that in my house with my kids. Like that's transforming the way we communicate as a family. I'm like, holy crap. You know, you don't, when you share, when you get vulnerable and you're, you're open to sharing moments, you're most, <laughs> my wife said to me, it's like, well, there'll never be a tell-all book about you. You did it, you know? which is kind of funny and because this is not, there are no victory laps in here. This is literally like, I mean, I talk about a time when I, I lost my job and was signing up for a Marriott because I couldn't pay my bills and had foreclosures on my house. I talk about a time when I got fired really publicly. I mean, I, it's in there. I will tell you the world is wobbly and life is messy. And I think the more we can talk about it and get comfortable, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah, I know that's a long story, but that's it. No, that's, that's good. I appreciate giving you that much background, but I want to pull you back to that pivotal moment, which was the suicide of your best friend, because what you said is that there were two sides of you that were in conflict, your heart and your, you know, that hard driving professional life where you have to compete and compete and drive for results as a CEO, a sports CEO on top of that. So bring me back to the shift. How did that change you? What did you experience from that suicide that changed you dramatically is what I'm gathering here that led to this whole book. Yeah, you know, we're a sum of our experiences and a combination of the people we spend time with and what we aspire to be. That's how I think that's how I think about who we are. And that was a to say the very least, an influential and pivotal moment in my life. How did it change me? Boy, I will say this. I feel like there's an epidemic in this country a mental health epidemic. And my, my awareness has gone up dramatically. And that, it just seems to be, the reason Be Where Your Feet is interesting now is, is because it's the anecdote to what's happening right now in the world. And I've spoken to 60 companies in the last couple of months, and I will tell you, we have a problem. It's like people are struggling. And by the way, I've struggled. So I can say like, hey, hand up. I have a daughter here who's got some pretty intense social anxiety. And I don't think I would have... You know, I was like, just get in the car. Like, just get out. Like, I didn't have that. I didn't have empathy or compassion or understanding. And that helped me get there. I don't feel nervous. Like, people feel nervous before they talk. I don't, I don't get that. People feel anxiety walking into a, a cocktail party where they don't know anybody. I don't. I walk in, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I get to meet new people. So I don't have that. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, <laughs> I understand. I understand what it feels like. And so that's been pretty influential for me and, and certainly changed the way I see the world. I also have studied quite a bit. I mean, I, I think that we have to do something for our minds, something for our bodies, and something for our soul every day. Get sleep, practice gratitude, be where your feet are. Just put your phone down and get your head up. And I, anyone that will listen to me, I will tell them that like, there's an anecdote to give yourself the best chance to stay mentally healthy. And I think it matters. And it matters right now. So that the sense of like learning, like listening to this podcast actually matters. It matters that we're learning outside of our core job, that we're learning and we're growing and stretching and that we're, and that's your mind and your body and that you're putting 20 minutes a day into getting that heart rate up. And whether that's a walk or a Peloton ride or a swim or 
whatever you want to do, get dance, get the heart rate going. Yeah. And then the soul is complicated to talk about at work. Maybe not, maybe more, more complicated than talking about love at work is talking about the soul. Because for me, you know, reading scriptures and go to church and saying my prayers and getting on my knees, that, that's for me. But that's not for everyone and that's okay. But you have to find stillness. And so how do you find stillness? Is it through meditation? Is it through yoga? Is it through sitting out, listening to the birds chirp in the morning? All good. And sleep. Get your freaking sleep. I've dealing with professional athletes. I've had the good fortune of working with some of the top sleep experts in the world. And we're not sleeping enough. Because in my generation, it was like, sleep's for the week. Money never sleeps. All these crazy things that don't matter for anything. And it's like, we need sleep. And then practicing gratitude. When I speak to corporate groups, I always say the same thing. So I invite your listeners to do this too. Put this on pause. Take out your phone. Send a text to your mom. And just say, mom, I love you. I appreciate you. I know sometimes I don't say it, but you're the most important thing in the world to me. I think about you all the time. I'm grateful for who you are and how you've impacted my life. Love, Scott. Send her that note. The response I got back the first time I did it was, hon, are you okay? I mean, are you kidding? It's like, my mom, <laughs> honey, everything okay? That's not, that's not work. It's like, and I invite you to take a 30-day challenge. You get out, you get in the morning, pick up your phone, which I hope you don't do the first thing, but if you do, send them a gratitude for 30 days in a row to somebody different every day. I will promise you, the world will send you people that need to hear from you. And they'll get a note, and you'll get a response back. It's like, wow, I really need to hear this today. And for me, being in a dark place at one time, like I needed to hear it. I needed that. And so I will tell you, there are people in your life that need to hear it. So that's gratitude. And the sixth one is, is be where your feet are, which is put your phone down and get your head up. And we need to put, we need to self-regulate, just like we do with our kids. And by the way, I'm very draconian with the kids, like no phones in the kitchen, no phones in the bedroom, no electronics in the bedroom. We put restrictions on how long they can use social media, and that is not popular. But what about us? Like, is our phone by our bed? And if so, why? Yeah. Well, I need my alarm. Do you? What's the first thing that happens? You get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, check your phone. Do you really need to be checking your phone at three in the morning? Why are we looking at our phone? Why do we have to respond to something? We go out to dinner with our friends, we haven't seen our friends in a year and we bring our phones. Leave your phones in the car. You're with your partner, your spouse, your friend, your roommate. Be where your feet are. Create meaningful moments and memories. Put your phone down. How terrible is it? As a boss at work, you want to show not being not being loving? Here it is. Hey, what'd you say? Marcel, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Just hold on. Hold on a second. Or it's like, hey, what do you need? I'm with you. Mm. I'm 100% present. I'm, I'm going to be where my feet are because you matter to me. That's love. That's love in action. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's funny as you're the pandemic, what I think it, what it has forced us to rediscover what we value as human beings, as workers, bosses, parents, spouses. And I think this is a good segue to talk about the rest of your book because you lay out these seven principles. I think you've already talked about some practical elements you know, the gratitude and the just kind of the staying present. And w- one of the principles that you talk about, and tell me if this is already, that, that you, this is part of, I think you, when you said it, be present, you talked about finding your quiet time, finding your peace and finding yourself. So break that down for us. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, I had this great, this great executive coach. I know you're an incredible executive coach, but her name was Trisha Nadoff. She was a friend of my mom's and I was in the thick of it at Madison Square Garden. I mean, it's a very intense place. It's 2008, the financial crisis. We're yeah. spinning the company out to be a separately traded public company. We're investing a billion two to create, keep the world's most famous arena, the world's most famous arena. And it was a high pressure cooker environment. And my mom must have heard something about it. She said, hey, you ever had a coach before? I said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, let me send you someone. Just talk to her. See what you think. And Trisha came down to New York several times and helped 
me. It was too early for me. I wasn't ready. <laughs> but as I reflect back now, I remember her saying, like, you want to be a warrior? I'm like, that's right. She's like, you'd like to kill? I'm like, absolutely. She's like, okay, that's great. You know, you, the sage phase is wonderful as well. That warrior phase is a phase. You need to move on. And I was like, well, I don't want to move on. You know, and she's like, no, no, no. You want to move on because you want to help others fulfill their dreams. You want to help create an environment where others can be successful. I was like, yeah. You didn't have that awareness at that point. No, no, I didn't know what she was talking about. Yeah. And so she said, I mean, think about that's where, when you can reflect back, when you have time, when I have all that time to write, it's so much time to reflect. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can reflect is if you have stillness and quiet, right? And so when you're actually thinking back, it's like, you know, I got fired from there. It's like, why did I get fired? It's like, I was so busy being right. I had no time to be effective. That's the therefore. But so then she says to me, do you want to meditate? I was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> She's like, Scott, I need you. I need you to meditate for you. This isn't for me. This is for you. And I was like, I don't believe in that. She's like, well, what don't you believe in? You don't believe in stillness. You don't believe in quieting your soul. You don't believe in the value of being still so your mind and body can get well. And I was like, well, well, if you put it that way, it sounds <laughs> So she had me, you know, I'm in Manhattan, midtown Manhattan. I'm not in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I mean, street cars are buzzing by, ambulances, police cars. I'm up. Yeah. 15 floors up, looking over Midtown. And she's like, close your eyes. And I'm like, if I lost my mind, you know? <laughs> and what I learned later on, you know, and I got better at the first, I could only, you know, do it for about 15 seconds. And then I, I got up to several minutes and, and now I'm uh, much more accomplished. And I go in and out of my meditation phase, depending on how I need it and how I'm doing. But it was a great education and a great learning for me. And I, I was in the car with this guy, Josh Saban, who was a long time uh, CEO of and networks, and we were in a cab, a taxi cab, and we were going from Madison Square Garden up to Radio City Music Call together. He looks over me, we get in a cab, a cab, a yellow cab, and he's like, hey, do you mind if I meditate? And I almost said, are you serious? In a cab. And so I'm like, no, nah, do your thing. And this is just after my meeting where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. And he's like sitting in a comfortable position, and he's got his eyes closed, and we take like a crazy turn, and he, his head like whacks against the, <laughs> and he doesn't move. And I'm like, okay, there's something to this, you know? And so long answer to a short question is, is stillness is not something we get a lot in life. And if you think about, you know, you can get stillness in the shower, you know, because it's just, you know, you don't have music in there, nobody's bothering you. And you wonder, it's like, why do good ideas come to you in the shower? When I swim as well, those are two areas where good ideas come. It's because I have no distractions. And so for some meditation, it's just clearing of the mind and clearing of the thoughts and recognizing thoughts as they come and and being still, and it's a wonderful practice. Yeah. If you can't get there, do you meditate? I do, but I was going to ask you, because there might be people listening right now that was you during that phase when your mother says you need to meditate, and you're like, ah, yeah, whatever, mom, right? <laughs> because they don't understand the practice of it. So can you tell us specifically, how do you meditate? What are the steps? Yeah, I'm sure everyone has their own. So there, there are two apps I use. One is Calm and one is Peloton app. And they have wonderful meditations depending on when you're doing it. I tend to meditate at night, which everyone says is counterintuitive. But for me, my mind races. I have, I have difficulty getting to sleep because I want, you know, my mind is just going and I'm thinking a lot of things. I just lay in a comfortable position and, and close my eyes and, and get my arms in a really comfortable spot. And then they walk you through just kind of general breathing and they coach you through how to recognize thoughts and just recognize them and just get them out of your head and get yourself empty-headed and clear. 
it's a wonderful process. If I was listening to me 15 years ago, I'd have thought, I might even hit, hey, let's, let's move on to the next podcast. Don't. <laughs> Listen, give it a try. Oh, I can tell you, and you need practice and discipline. It takes some time, but, but it'll help all sorts of, of parts of your life. Okay, I'll make sure that I'll put that app in my resources section on my website. That might be a really valuable tool. Fantastic. To yeah, that's great. Okay, so I'm thinking, you know, so many leaders listen to the show and you talk about committing to creating your leadership constitution. <laughs> what is a leadership constitution? So a leadership constitution is who you are at your essence. It's not what you who you aspire to be, it's who you are at the core. Okay, so you, you answer two questions. I declare that I am, dot, 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 and you can count on me to be, dot, dot, dot. Those are two questions you answer. So I declare that I am, you can count on me to be. So I'll read my first one first. So I declare that I am a passionate and authentic leader of leaders who feels a gravitational pull towards talent and character. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I love people and being part of a team. I get energy from helping others and would give the shirt off my back to a stranger and anything, anytime to a friend. I am a family-first, high-integrity, and surprisingly sensitive change agent who is confident, caring, and intellectually curious. This fuels a competitive drive that at times might feel like a chip on my shoulder. So there's a lot there to think about and unpack. And what I write is not what you'll write. What you'll write is like who you are. You can count on me to bring positive energy into my space, to exude urgency and push you, challenge you, nudge you, and raise the bar beyond your expectations and sometimes what you think is reasonable. You can count on me to laugh with you, cry with you, love you, even when you won't laugh, haven't cried, and don't feel loved. You can count on me to root for you today, every day, and always. To share the most personal thoughts, emotions, stories, highs and lows, because I am okay with it and who I am. You can count on me to enjoy the roller coaster of life, whether we're going forwards, backwards, or upside down. You can count on me to drive hard and reach the summit, and then quickly start on another mountain. And you can count on me to share wins and take hits for losses. So the concept is you articulating who you are, and then you're declaring it and reading it and posting it so everybody else knows. And what's fascinating is, is once you understand your colleagues, your peers, and their leadership constitutions, life gets pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. In other words, I know exactly what is driving him or her. I know exactly who she is. I know exactly what his core is, what he is at his core. So it really explains a lot of the, the tension or problems or issues where they gravitate towards and want. So it is a wonderful tool for the office and team building, but for yourself to get up and declare who you are. And I know it feels goofy to like read that in front of a mirror. I know, I understand. Do it. Like it sets the tone for the day. You know, when you're off center, I don't know what other people call it, but I always say when I'm off center, meaning when I'm out of sorts or out of kilter or just feeling like I have an edge or I'm not what we call palms up, my arms are crossed in front of me and I, I don't have an open mind, I can typically read my leadership constitution and there's somewhere in there I'm not living. Because when I'm not living this, I'm out of sorts. And so it's a, it's a wonderful guide to teach you. Yeah, it's a way to really always keep you pointing towards your true north. That's and, right. And really hold you accountable. It's, I almost say it's a very long mission statement with all of your values kind of embedded into it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Say. That's great. That's great. Okay. I want to talk to you about this human need for, man, especially now, connection and belonging. I mean, I've read so much research that says that we are in a, there's an epidemic of loneliness in the workplace. 
And you say that, and I quote, isolation is today's kryptonite. Do you have a story, personal story behind that? And how can we as leaders open ourselves up to connect more, to be more authentic and real and open up our hearts to people? Yeah, that's a good multi-layer question. The story I can think of is when I was running this company called Hoops TV and it went under. We raised $15 million. I was a kid. I was 27 or 28 years old. I was way too young to be running a company and way too young for anybody to give $15 million to. And I made so many mistakes. And Anyway, we built a really cool company with a lot of amazing people. We became the number two basketball website in the world behind NBA and it crashed and burned. I isolated myself. And that's what I did. I mean, other than my wife, who I'd see, she's just like, oh boy, this guy. Again, it's one of the, I mean, it's probably two or three times in my life when I was in a dark place. And that was one of them. The other one was when, when Will took his own life. But And I needed to find people and find connection and find community because that is what gives me energy. But I wasn't. I was doing, and I was walking with my daughter quite a bit and I was reading a bunch, but that was not a great, a great time for me. And meanwhile, I've getting foreclosure notices in my house and I have all kinds of financial pressure and mounting bills. And I'm like, holy moly. So it was a really tough time. I have this sense that the work-life line was already thinning. It's now completely evaporated. Okay. So, you know, we are being pushed as CEOs and as leaders and managers to move to a, a hybrid or, or at, at, at the very least, some flexibility in the workplace, which is wonderful. And if you don't do it, you're going to lose your top people anyway. So we're all going to be forced into that game. And there's some tremendous efficiency advantages in doing it. Tremendous. You know, in terms of eliminating commutes, and proving to the old school cynics that no, your people are not going to be out playing tennis. They're actually going to do work. Prove that through the pandemic. It, it, this can happen. The downsides are big as well. We're hearing about the great resignation. You might have heard that term. It just means that the CEOs I'm talking to, people are flooding out at record levels. They're also telling me that the way they, their surveys in terms of culture and, and health and wellness of the organization and how strong the culture is, they're at all time lows everywhere. Because we haven't adjusted as leaders and managers. We have to do better. It's like, how are we going to create that sense of community and belonging when Sarah is working from her one-bedroom studio 30 miles away? Well, guess what? It's time to get creative. Okay, We need to think really differently about what we do and how we do it. And because these Zooms are clinical, it's like, I just want to get off. And so does everybody. It's 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, an hour, 45 minutes, 45 minutes all stacked up back to back. It's like, uh, Zoom fatigue. I'm exhausted. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't take another Zoom. So what we're missing is, it's like, hey, how's your weekend? Hey, kid at a soccer game. How'd it go? Hey, I heard your partner's in an art show. What's going on? Like, where is that? How's it, how's it all happening online? Hey, what, what are you doing with that late project? There's none of that. Because we're just like in, out, in, out. It's transactional. So yeah. all this transactional stuff is creating isolation, which is creating disconnection, which is creating like, I can make, 10 grand more and work three hours a week, less a week. Okay. I have no time to anymore with my manager. I have no love or affection for the, for the company. It is what it is. So I think we need to think about, I'll give you one exa- like, tangible example that we used that I thought was really effective. During the heart of COVID, it was, it was rough. I mean, we were, me and my senior team, was about 15 people were meeting every morning at nine. I started at eight and I got so many complaints that I just moved it to nine. I never, because I'm an early morning. <laughs> and so like finally, uh, one of my friends was like, Scott, are you serious at eight o'clock? I was like, all right, well, what time do you think works? You know, anyway. So I moved it to nine. Everybody was assigned a different day and it was rotating. This went for, I guess, nine months every day. And so with 15 people, so every 16 days, you or 15 days, you would have to come up with some exercise for the group. 
it could be simple, like, hey, read this article and tell me what, how that might impact you at home and at work. And everybody hits reply all and everybody respond. Hey, send in your favorite photo from your favorite place. It could be that simple. Hey, everybody send in your favorite podcast and why. Hey, tell me about a time where you were successful. Hey, tell me a time where you failed and what you learned. Tell me a time where you're, that you're most proud of that we don't know about. Tell me a thing. I got to tell you, talk about creating community. It's like we all knew each other. We were getting peaks behind the curtain. We not only were seeing your kids fly across and your dog jump on you, or we saw that stuff too. We saw your living room and your kitchen for the first time, your family, all that stuff we saw. But then we got to know you personally. And so I'm not saying copy that. I'm saying, but what is your version of that? Why aren't we starting meetings by saying, okay, let's just shoot around the horn here. Just give me one thing you're grateful for. That's easy, right? Hey, one quick thing uh, you learned this week. We have to be better. We have to. It cannot be so transactional. We are creating more problems for ourselves than we'll be able to solve. I couldn't agree more. Scott, you also have this chapter uh, in the book called WMI. So the WMI for you listeners is the acronym for what's most important. And I'm like, sometimes we lose track and spend time doing the things that are not really important to us. And maybe a crisis will kind of get us off the path and we're all of a sudden, we're not operating out of our belief system, out of our our values, and the things that are most important to us. So I wanted to frame the, the, a few questions around this WMI, what's most important? What's most important to you? That's a good question. For me, it's pretty simple. It's my family, my faith, and my work in that order. And what's sadly missing from that is my friends. They'll tell you that I'm not, I'm not the best one. But I can tell you, like I, I have the sense that all the research will tell you that at work, just take one aspect of WMI at work. It's like high performers spend 65% of their team on the three things, 65% of their time on the three things that matter most. Okay. So high performers spend 65 or more percent of their time on the three things that matter most. And when I first did, and I, and there's a simple exercise you can do is you write those three things down. You audit your calendar at the end of a week and you put them into buckets and have others as a bucket and you just do quick percentages. And for me, the first time I did that, I was at 23%. 23. I can see myself a high performer. <laughs> I literally said, I want to be better and do better. So I have a choice. Right? I can either change my WMI or change my process. And so I decided to change my process and invited the word no into my vocabulary because I'm a people pleaser. I love to say yes. I love to help people. I love to be there for people. But I had to get some discipline. It's the same thing on the personal side. Like I talked about that six-step process for mental health. Do something for your mind, something for your body, something for your soul, sleep, gratitude, and be where your feet are. It's like, are there three things there you want to focus on? How about relationships? Are there three relationships you want to focus on? And then like, do yourself a favor and do an audit and say like, okay, I have to tighten up this relationship with my wife. Okay. I love her. She's amazing. We're feeling disconnected. It happens to everybody, every relationship. Okay. What are you going to do? Are you going to spend time or not? We have dinner. For us, like when we feel disconnected, we go on walks and we have, we, we call non-transactional walks. We just go for a walk together and we talk about everything other than stuff we have to do. Hey, did you send this in? Hey, did you drop off the kid for so-and-so? Hey, when's the next X? None of that. It's just a non-transactional walk. It's wonderful. I know that if that relationship is humming and going well, I'm happier. So that is always, and there's always some other ones you got to tighten up. Mm. And so, and then audit your calendar, like hold yourself accountable and, or just decide like, hey, at least I want to know. I just want to know how much time I'm spending. Because the reality is with kids, I got three girls, two teenagers. It's like, you think you're having like, meaningful moments in the morning no uh, in our house anyway it's like ncaa tournament survived in advance like uh oh here comes chaos 
My computer wasn't plugged in. Where are my cheer shoes? Hey, my basketball stuff's in I don't have my bag. Where's my drink? I'm like, holy moly. Like, there's no meaningful <laughs> moments. Just get them out of the house. And then I'm at work. They're at school. They come home. They got practice. They have boyfriends and homework and all this other crap. How much time do I have? How much real, real, meaningful time do I have? Right? An hour? How are you going to spend an hour? Because once you understand your calendar, you understand, okay, I got 45 minutes with my kid. So it's going to change the complexion of how I eat, eat dinner. Mm. I'm not going to have my phone. I'm not going to have my iPad. I'm not going to eat in front of TV. Like, how am I spending the time? How about like at work, your colleagues at work who you love, love and action, right? Love. How much meaningful time are you having with each of them? When's the last meaningful conversation you had with somebody at work? Meaningful. When's the last moment you created? Or you on your phone or on your, hey, I got to run. Sorry. I got to go. You got two minutes? Because that's what we're living right now. And I think for us to realize our potential, to optimize. And, and if you're completely Machiavellian, that's okay. It's like, I promise you'll be a better boss. You will be a better husband. You'll be a better father. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better partner. You'll be a better friend. If you do this, to be in the moment is going to matter. And yeah. to do that, you've got to really understand what your WMI is. Okay, bring this from a, a business leadership standpoint. So, you know, you've reached the highest levels of an organization with the Philadelphia 76ers, New Jersey Devils. I mean, so, and there is a, you know, we talked about this. There was a before Scott focused on driving and results and the hard stuff. And then the after Scott, which is like finally connecting with his heart to understand the need for connection and the need to just stop and be present and in the moment. Okay. So here's the question, because I want to frame this around WMI. (laughs) What should be maybe one or two things that we as business leaders should start doing to contribute to our WMI? What's most important? I'm not sure because I think your WMI will be personalized and individual depending on you. But I, I will say that if people, the healthy organization, the culture, if that is part of your WMI, always a part of mine, I would be thinking about how I am creating environments for connection and creating community. Again, when you knock it down to three, it's manageable. Like it's, you know exactly what you need to do. It's not rocket science. It's universal. It is. It is. If that's important, and I always say, like, again, if culture is what you celebrate and tolerate, you may choose a culture that's like kill or be killed, cutthroat. That's not how I want to work, but I'm not here to judge other people. That really wouldn't fit. I don't think that person would be a guest on your podcast, but in the world that I want to live in, one that's kind of grounded in love, appreciation, respect, accountability, results, that's one where we have to spend time, intentional time. That's the key word. I guess... If there's one word I want your listeners to take away is I want to be intentional. I want to be intentional about my WMI. I want to be intentional about the way I spend my time. I want to be intentional about who I am and how I show up. I want to be intentional about the relationships. And I appreciate your question about, hey, take this back to work. But remember, it's like every CEO that's listening has a family. Now, that family may be different than my family. It might be a work family. It might be a church family. It might be a community family. It might be a work family. We all define it differently, but everybody's got another side of their life. That's not at work. Everybody. And just like the, the person you meet at the playground or the person you meet in the grocery store or the person you meet in a restaurant or forced into a business meeting, there's a lot of stuff bouncing around that head, you know, that we don't know. And so I would just encourage you to just, as we say in the book, API, assume positive intent. Thanks for that. Well, before we come to a close, Scott, uh, is there any question that I should have asked but didn't that's important to this discussion? The interview is amazing and you're incredible at this. So 
going. I guess the one thing I'd love to leave your listeners with is to think about being your authentic self, for one. And so what does that look like? How do you show up? Who are you at your best? And show up that way. Two, while we can borrow things we learn from other leaders, I would just encourage you to find out who you are. And if you're rah-rah, be rah-rah. If you're analytical, be analytical. If you're strategic, be strategic. And then surround yourself with people to fill your gaps. Thirdly, I would say, if you're doing great, someone asked me, your glass always seems half full. I said, hey, my man, I'm grateful just to have a glass. (laughs) I said, but if your glass is full and you're feeling good and you're healthy and you're doing wonderful and the wind is at your back, I just would strongly encourage you or advise you to reach out and help others. Like, look, who doesn't have their video on in the next Zoom? Whose voicemail box is full? Who's not responding to text? Who missed the deadline that never missed the deadline? Who's late for calls that never is late for calls? Like, just be aware and just reach out and just check in. And the world is better when love is in action, for sure. And it's a, it's a time in the world and our lives where we need love and action more than ever before. And we, as the leaders and managers of this next generation that's coming up in the pipe, they need us. They need you. And so I think we can do better and be better. I have this saying that goes, look for the abnormal in the normal. And that takes knowing your people so that you can see, okay, if that something is off with someone and then reach out to that person that, that that's, you know, just maybe struggling with, with something. Wow. This has been an empowering discussion. And we bring it home, Scott, with two final questions. Personally, here it is. What's really tugging at your heart right now that we should know? Mental health. Mm-hmm. Mental health, mental health, mental health. And I think that'll be tugging at my heart for some time. And I think that we all need to pay attention. And finally, you get to bring us home with a closing remark, a mic drop moment, or a key takeaway. What would that be? My key takeaway is that I love your focus on love and action. Absolutely. I think it's what we need more of. I think that leaders and managers who exude love, show love in the office, will see extraordinary results, create a better place to work, and have more fun along the way. Fantastic. And that inspires me to keep going. And I'm honored that you would actually pick that as your key remark and tie it into uh, our mission, our purpose uh, to, for doing this podcast. So thank you for that. Scott, if people want to connect with you and learn more about you and maybe get some resources, where can they go? LinkedIn. Scott O'Neill on LinkedIn. That's the best place to get me. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Scott O'Neill. There you go. I'll make sure to include that in my resources section. It's been an honor and I had a blast talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Right back at you. Thanks and continued success. Thank you, sir. Join the conversation and a comment on this episode with hashtag Love in Action Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.